We're in the men's retreat and baptism Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to do some baptisms. That's always a great Sunday, so it's uh, really going to be a fun month. And I'll just give a quick uh, reiteration of the men's retreat. We're going to have fun. It's the very last Friday, Saturday of this month, and uh, we've got some special things planned. We're going to have a good time. So uh, if you want to connect with other men and uh, want to get to know some other guys better, uh, this is really the time to do it. We'll have a, f- a fun opportunity to do that. So be sure to get signed up. Guys always put it off. It's always like, well, I don't know, you know. So we want you to sign up. You can sign up online. You can sign up on your app. We will even accept, because this is guys, we will even accept you just writing men's retreat on the back of your blue card. And we'll take care of the rest of it for you. We know how you are, okay? So we'll do that. We want you to come. We want you to bring another guy with you. We're going to have fun. We're going to have a uh, uh, great time. You can open your Bibles, if you'd like, briefly to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to dive right in by just reading a text. Reading the text that really has been behind everything we've said for the last several Sundays. Reading this text and talking about what it means. So, it's in Matthew 5. It's the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. The very, uh, one of the very earliest teachings that Jesus gave. And beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city cannot, on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So this is the last Sunday of this series we've called Salt and Light, uh, Be Salt and Light. And we're talking about how to engage in a changing culture. Not just how to be salt and light, but how to be salt and light in the United States in the year 2017, in this polarized society that we live in. And, and this is an important subject for us to talk about. It's vital for a church to address these kinds of subjects because every church, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your theology is, every church has a tendency to, to turn inward. It's just the nature of people to turn inward and become us for no more and, and to become focused on ourselves. And it's even more tempting when, when it's comfortable in here and a little bit uncomfortable out there. And so when we don't have the home field advantage anymore, uh, it's even more tempting for us to retreat as a, as a church, retreat and to just, let's just do things that we like, and let's just make sure that we're happy and things are the way we like them. And it's so tempting for uh, any church, even in the best of times. But there's a basic quality to salt and light, which Jesus says that his followers are salt and light. There's a basic quality to both salt and light that Jesus' followers have to embody, and it is this that salt and light are only helpful when they come into contact with decay and darkness. 
Salt and light are only of value when they come into, into contact with decay and darkness. That's the purpose of salt and light. Uh, salt in Jesus' day was not just used for seasoning food. It was also used as a preservative for food. They didn't have refrigeration in those days. And so they would use salt to help preserve food. But it only could pres- perform its preserving function when it was engaged with the food that it was supposed to preserve. And then Jesus says as, as much about light here. He says, listen, you're the light of the world, but nobody takes a light and puts it under a bowl. That doesn't make any sense. No, you put a light up on its stand because the purpose of light is to flow into dark places and illuminate them. The purpose of light is to go where darkness is and remove it. It's the very, it's the very nature of salt and light they, they can only perform their function when they come into contact with decay and darkness. And that's where we end up today at the end of these four Sundays. So we've taken three Sundays. Today is the fourth Sunday to talk about this idea, how to engage in a changing culture. And, and here's what it really comes down to. We said a lot of important things uh, up to this point, but, but what we say today has to go with it all or, or it all collapses, The way to engage a changing culture is to actually engage a changing culture. That's what we have to do. We have to engage a changing culture and come into contact with it. And everything we've talked about up to this point presupposes what we're going to talk about this morning. We've said that one of the ways that we are uh, able to influence our culture is by leading with love. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, uh, showing people shocking love, treating them like people in, in a culture where may, maybe uh, many people don't, and just showing shocking love to people, and leading with love, let, letting love be the first thing out of our mouths. The first thing that people see about us is love before they see truth. The second thing we've talked about, we talked about it last Sunday, is the importance of listening to each other and, and really listening to people who are different than us and, and, and not trying to persuade them, not trying to uh, correct them, but just engaging in actual authentic conversations and listening as part of that. But both loving and listening presuppose a basic re- a level of engagement with people. We can't show love to people we're not engaged with. We can't uh, listen in conversation with people that we don't have a relationship with. So everything we've talked about up to this point depends on what we're going to talk about this morning. It depends on a level of engagement that we have with people who don't know Jesus. We've got to be actively engaged and then not just engaged, but engaged and salty. Now, when I say salty, I'm talking about Jesus' reference to salt here in Matthew, where he says, uh, be salt, but don't be salt that's lost its flavor. And he especially talks about this. You can really see it when Jesus talks about salt being salt in the Gospel of Luke. And it becomes very clear that what Jesus means is that salty, salty people are people who follow him wholeheartedly, and that The less wholehearted someone is in their relationship with Jesus, the less authentic they are, the less salty they are. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, be salty, he means you are, as my followers, salty, but you're only salty to the level that you're authentic and wholehearted in following me. 
So what that means in this discussion this morning is we've got to be engaged with people, and as we're engaged, we have to be salty. We've got to be wholehearted Jesus followers in those engaged relationships, not closet Jesus followers, and not casual Jesus followers. The only way we'll really perform our salty function is if we are both engaged and wholehearted. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'd like us to break that down a little bit and start just with the idea of engagement. As Jesus followers, we can't do our job without being in contact with the people that we hope to influence. It's just not possible. You can try to do it from your phone. You can try to do it, but you really can't. There's, there's only so much that you can do uh, through social media in influencing people. Not to say that it doesn't play a role, but, but really the only role that we can play is a role of engagement with actual people. And you can do that. You can do that through, through social media, but you've got to do it in a way that's authentic and personal. And as Jesus followers, we just can't do our job with people who, that we're not engaged with. Because you've got to remember what people think about Christianity. The only contact that a lot of people have with Christianity is that goofy TV preacher that they have. See, you know, every once in a while they flip through that channel, get lost in their cable uh, guide, and end up on this channel. Uh, this morning I turned on the TV for my boys to kind of engage them for a few minutes, and boom, there it was, some guy I'd never heard of. And I don't even watch the religious channel, and it was like channel 500 and something. But there's this guy, not the kind of guy you'd say, well, yeah, I'm like, you know, you don't. That's what people think of when they think of. Jesus followers. That may be the only contact someone you know or people in this valley have is that goofy teacher, a preacher on TV, or that weird church that's around the corner, or that truck that drives around with a bumper sticker that that says, God hates people like me, basically. And that's the only exposure that people have to Christianity. It's not they've never heard of it. It's that they've heard of it, and the version they've seen is not something they're interested in. Now, you want to personalize that, and you think about the 30,000 people who live in our valley who are totally disengaged from uh, Christianity, 30,000 people. It's not that they've never heard of it, 30,000 people, 60%. It's not they've never heard of Christianity. It's It's that the version they know is not something they're interested in. Well, how many of those 30,000 people have any kind of relationship with an authentic Jesus follower? How many of them have any kind of meaningful relationship with someone who really is a a salty Jesus follower? And really, having a personal relationship with a salty Jesus follower is really a person's best hope in this culture. If they don't have a relationship with someone who follows Jesus, then then there are several layers removed from ever being either exposed to the gospel and coming to a point of believing that it's true. And here's the, here's the thing. So you think of those 30,000 people who don't have any, uh, you know, we don't know what level of relationship they have with authentic Jesus followers. And then you think about people with lifestyles. I mean, the, the further a person's worldview or lifestyle gets from ours, uh, the, the less even less likely it is that they have any kind of meaningful relationship with the Jesus follower. And it's not necessarily their fault. You remember looking at that chart we looked at a couple of weeks ago that said that uh, Jesus followers, this is research by the Barna organization, it said that Christians have an above-normal level of discomfort 
talking to people who aren't like us, talking to Mormons or atheists or uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual. Christians are much less comfortable than just the average population talking with people who are different from us. The only people that we're comfortable with talking to is evangelical Christians. And that's got to change. That's got to change. And, and we can change it. We can change it. We can change ourselves. And, and what we want to be at Trinity, we want to be people where there's not a person that we're not willing to talk to, comfortable talking to, comfortable having a normal, meaningful relationship about any kind of subject. I mean, we want to be those people, uh, people who aren't afraid to engage with any kind of person, and then who actually seek out engagement with people. But not everyone wants to be engaged. There's a book out right now, I'm going to... I'm not gonna, it's called the Benedictine Option. The reason it's called the Benedictine Option is because Benedict was a saint who basically withdrew from society in order to get himself salty. So he went off by himself. And this book has been out for a few weeks, and I haven't read it, uh, but I've read a little bit about it, and I'm not going to jump on him too hard because he makes some points. But what he says is that what Christians need to do is they need to withdraw from culture. They need to get their kids out of public schools. They need to get, their ki- they need to get rid of their... Uh, their uh, iPhones and, and smartphones and tablets, get rid of all that. And basically what Christians need to do is they need to hunker down in their church and get salty. Well, there are some things to be said for Christians getting salty and doing some things that help us to do that. But see, the, the, the problem with that is salt is no good when it's in the salt shaker. And light is no good when it's under a bowl. And so it's not a choice between get salty or get engaged with the culture. It's not a choice. Which one of those are you going to do? Be a wholehearted Jesus follower or be engaged in the culture? That's a false choice. Jesus followers need to be salty and engaged in the lives of people who aren't like us. It's not either or. It's got to be both and. And that's certainly how the early church did it. The early church, we kind of looked a couple times at some lessons from the early church in this study. And one of the things that you can see that as historians try to explain the rise of Christianity, not from a theological point of view, but just from a historical point of view, there's a guy named Rodney Stark who's written a book called The Rise of Christianity. When he wrote this book, he was a professor at the University of Washington. So it's a great book, considered a pretty definitive study on the growth of the early church, the rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark. And what he says is this. He traces the growth of the early church from about the time that the New Testament ends. So about 90 AD or so, you know, he kind of goes for the next 200 years. And he traces the growth of the church from a time when it was 0.04% of the population, 0.04% to the point where it was about 60% of the population. Now imagine that growth in about, in a couple hundred years, 0.04. If we were talking about Walla Walla, that would mean there are about 12 Christians in Walla Walla. And the whole valley, 20. And that over time, something happened so that within a couple hundred years, instead of 12 in the the city, there are 18,000 Jesus followers. And instead of just 20 in the whole valley, there are 30,000 Jesus followers. And that growth took place, as historians look at it, one of the reasons the church grew like that is because they didn't isolate themselves. They maintained open, what they call open networks with with pagan culture. And pagan culture wasn't a pretty place. 
it wasn't a pretty place. You remember that uh, husbands in that culture, uh, husbands in that culture were able to have sex with their wives, have sex with their slaves, and have sex with prostitutes. And not only was it permissible, it was expected. All right, that was part of getting their man card punched. You get your wife to punch it, you get your slaves to punch it, you get prostitutes to punch it. That's what men had the freedom to do. It wasn't a pretty culture. Infanticide was commonly practiced, and we forget about it and we think that these are just stories, but you know what people did for fun in those days? They went and watched, they went to stadiums and watched people be torn to pieces by wild beasts. Those aren't stories, that's history. That's what people did for fun. And that's the culture that the early church was not afraid to engage as Jesus. They maintained open networks to pagan people with idolatrous practices and immorality. And they weren't afraid to do that. Ultimately, that changed history. That would, that took the church from 12 people in the city to 18,000, from 20 to 30,000. And they did it by staying engaged. But it wasn't just staying engaged. It was staying engaged and being salty. They were both engaged and salty. When I say salty, remember, we're talking about being whole, bringing their identity as Jesus followers into these relationships. So they stayed in relationship with non-Jesus followers, and they brought their identity as Jesus followers into those relationships. They were engaged and salty. And it really takes both parts of that equation. And that's the other thing we've got to remember. We've got to be engaged and engaged in a salty way. You could kind of describe what I'm talking about, being engaged and being salty, in uh, two phrases that we sometimes use at Trinity. They're on this uh, insert that you have here that's uh, a way of equipping all the people at Trinity to share their story and God's story and some things to remember. And in that things to remember, you see a couple phrases. One of those is called, be prepared to stop. And the be prepared to stop phase of... of, uh, engaging people and, and uh, being salt and light is that we've got to be, we've got to find time to engage. That's really, be prepared to stop is being engaged. We've got to make time for people who don't know Jesus. We've got to build them into our lives and find ways to build relationships with them. So that's be prepared to stop. And the other phrase is be prepared to step. That is, uh, be prepared to step, take that Lunge into uh, a spiritual conversation. Bring your identity as a Jesus follower into these relationships. That be prepared to step. We're talking about that that moment when you've got to take a deep breath and say a quick prayer because a subject has come up that you see as, uh, as the right time for you to bring Jesus into the conversation or bring your faith into a conversation. And that is a step, and, and uh, we've got to be prepared to do that. There's a man who uh, is a great at sharing his faith with people, and, and he does exactly what we're talking about. He builds relationships with people, and then here's how he knows when to step, when to bring his identity into a relationship. He says, uh, when you're in relationship with people over time, one of four things happen. People die... Relationships struggle, health 
fails and things break. And when people die and relationships struggle and health fails and something breaks, um, uh, uh, those are the four times when you have a giant opening for stepping into your relationship that you've already had with someone and bringing your identity as a Jesus follower. But you've got to be, we've got to be prepared to step. And as we do that, research shows that Americans are very willing to engage in spiritual conversations. They're very willing to engage in spiritual conversations with a few qualifications. They want to be treated with respect. Well, that's okay. Peter tells us we're supposed to do that anyway. They want to be in an authentic, they want to talk to someone who's authentic. That's okay, because we want to be salty anyway. And if they're treated with respect and they're talking to someone who is authentic, they are more than willing. They are overwhelmingly willing to have spiritual conversations with those qualifications. So we have permission from the Lord. We don't need any other permission. But also from our culture, it's something that we can do. And often we're afraid to cross that line because we just haven't done it and we don't know what's going to happen if we do. We step into that zone of bringing our identity into a relationship and pointing people to Jesus and the gospel and talking about what we believe. But if we'll do that, we'll find people are open to hearing us, engaged and then bringing our identity with a stepping into conversations that lead to Jesus. It's what Jesus did. Jesus is a great example of this with the woman at the well. We've looked at this several times in our study. And in, in uh, Jesus, in that John chapter 4, he's very much wanting to engage. He wants to engage. So when other people would travel around Samaria, this rough neighborhood, Jesus wants to go right through it because he wants to engage with someone. So he chooses to go straight through the, the rough neighborhood because he is on an engagement quest. And then he gets to this little town... And uh, at high noon, when everyone else is inside because it's hot, he sees a woman come to draw water at the well. And that fact alone, her coming by herself in the middle of the day, tells him something about her. She's not traveling with this gaggle of women in the morning or the evening together from the village to get water. She has to go by herself in the middle of the day. That alone tells Jesus something about her. And, and uh, you go on, you read the story, and you see that there are these divides that we've talked about. There's an ethnic divide between Jesus and this woman. There's a religious divide. She's Samaritan. He's Jewish. There's a gender divide. He's a guy. She's a lady. There's a big moral divide. Jesus is Jesus, and she's had five husbands, and she's with her sixth man. But that doesn't keep Jesus from talking to this woman. And so he engages but then he doesn't just engage, he, he's salty. He takes a step, and he asks her a simple question. And the question is this. Uh, can I have a drink of that water? And it's a simple question, but it wasn't an innocent question because Jesus knew by asking that question, just by talking to this lady, he was going to shock her. And... and just, just by talking to her, he was going to shock her. And then, uh, by treating her respectfully, he was going to shock her even more. 
He's engaged. He's not afraid to step. And then ultimately, he leads her to his identity. I who speak to you am he. I'm the one God sent. And he gives her the good news. And she responds to it. And she goes back to her village and shares it with other people. So Jesus did that. It's another great picture of someone who did that. His name is Philip. He's not Philip the disciple, one of the twelve. His name is Philip, and he's called Philip the evangelist. And he, this is in Acts chapter 8, and you can read about this. So God puts on Philip's heart. I want you to take this road that goes to Gaza. So he doesn't know exactly why, but it goes to the desert. It kind of goes down on your way towards Egypt, all right? And so Philip goes on this road, and I don't know how long he travels, but he travels, and over time he comes across a, a, a man in his chariot reading the Scriptures, reading his Bible. And he's a, he's a, a, a politician from Ethiopia in the middle of this road. And it's only Philip. It's only Philip and this guy. And so Philip sharp evangelist as he is, says, hey, you know what? Here's a guy who doesn't follow Jesus, and he's reading his Bible. I should probably talk to him about that. And so he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? What a great question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, no, because I don't have anyone to explain it to me. And Philip says, well, I'd like to give a crack at that. What are you reading? And he said, well, it's, and, and it's in Isaiah. And it's talking about the one that God is going to send. And Philip's like, I know what to do with this. And I love what it says. I love how Luke describes it for us. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. That Jesus is the one God sent, that he provides forgiveness of sins for all people, that it's not a matter of working for it, it's just believing and it's grace and it results in eternal life. All because Philip was engaged, he went down that road like God told him to, and he wasn't afraid to step. He wasn't afraid to bring his identity into that relationship. He sees a non-Jesus follower reading his Bible and says, huh, I'll just ask him about that. Paul does the same thing. Jesus, Philip, Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 17. That's uh, Paul in Athens. We've looked at that just a little bit. There was a synagogue in Athens. When you read this account, you read that Paul started out at the synagogue. He could have stayed in the synagogue. In the synagogue, it was kind of safe. I mean, not totally, because the Jewish people weren't always excited to hear about Jesus. But you at least shared a worldview and some ethnicity and some common culture with these people. But Paul wasn't satisfied just staying in the synagogue. He wanted to go out into the marketplace. And the marketplace in Athens was a crazy place. It was filled with idols. It was a religious smorgasbord with people peddling uh, uh, the paganist of religions and worldviews and lifestyles. And Paul went to these people so unlike him, left the synagogue and went to the marketplace. And he looked around and then he stepped and he said, I can see that you are a very religious people. I can see that. It's obvious to me. You have a very high interest in spiritual things. Let me tell you what I think it is that you're really looking for. And he goes into a conversation with them that ultimately leads to Jesus. I had something like this happen to me a couple of months ago. I was on my way to Seattle. 
On my way to Seattle for a medical appointment, a couple things you need to know about that trip. One is that I always feel like these are wasted days. It's a wasted day to drive to Seattle. You, gotta, you drive, you, you have these tests. End of the day, you meet with the doctor and talk about everything, and then you get back in the car and you drive back home. And I always feel like those are just wasted days. I tried my best to kind of redeem those days, so I fill up my phone with podcasts, and I bring some books and magazines for waiting in the doctor's office, you know, and all that. But just so hard. And that's the first thing you need to know is I'm always feeling like those are wasted days. And the other is uh, that I don't go to Seattle the way most people go to Seattle. When when most people go to Seattle, they drive through Yakima. But when I get to the Tri-Cities, I turn off and I drive by Hanford. I go up the Columbia River. I go through places like Mattawa and Shawana and uh, places you've never heard of, right, till I get to Vantage and then I cross over. And I do that because it's beautiful. It's a beautiful drive. It's a quiet drive. It's two-lane highway. Two-lane highway, there's no traffic. It's just beautiful and quiet. And so... uh, a couple months ago, I was on that trip, and I was about 60 miles on the other side of the Tri-Cities when all of a sudden, I lost power. The engine just quit on me, and the whole rig just starts to come to a coast. So I pull, I can, I pull over the side of the road, and I crank it a few times, nothing. I pray, and I crank it a few more times. Those are the only things I know how to do. <laughs> and so, and nothing. And I'm like, okay... This is not going anywhere. This, this thing is dead on a day when I had lots to do. And now I'm not only going to not get anything done today, I'm going to have to cancel my appointment, and I'm going to have to reschedule another day to waste uh, when i got to go to Seattle and see my doctor. So I'm thankful for cell phones. So I have my cell phone with me, and I call my doctor, and I cancel my appointment. And uh, she says, would you like to reschedule? I said, not right now, you know. Uh, Okay, I cancel my appointment, and then I get on the phone to try to find the cheapest tow truck 60 miles outside of the Tri-Cities. And I make several several phone calls, and finally I find a guy that's got a rate that that, uh, is better than the others. And so I, I... Call him, and he's gonna, he says, I'll be there, in, uh, be there in a little bit more than an hour, you know. And so I hunker down with a book. And uh, here's, here's what happens. It's a Monday. And the day before Monday, I was standing right here. And I was preaching to you, and we were looking at the book of Ruth. And that day, we were looking at that part of the book of Ruth where Ruth just happened to land on a field belonging to Boaz. Remember that? She just happened. And what I said to you was when we... Uh, God is... Uh, God is... Uh, what did I say? Uh, wait, yeah. God is in the details when we are in His will. God is in the details when we are in His will. And I'm thinking about that at the side of the road. God is in the details when we are in his will. Why does he want me to spend my day like this? So I'm waiting for the truck. The, the guy shows up. He's a tall, lanky guy. He's about 30 years old. And he hops out of the truck and he starts hooking up, hooking me up. And doesn't say a word to me. He's just hooking up, doing his job. And then he looks at me and he just points over there. 
you know. And so I go stand over there. He finishes and he tolls, pulls it up onto his truck and he kind of nods to get into the truck. So I get into the truck and I sit beside him and I think, oh, wow, the next 60 miles with a stranger, just him and me. If you know me, you know I'm not an extrovert. He's not an extrovert either. And it's just quiet. So I decide, I I reach over and I say, hey, my name's Brad. He shakes my hand, he tells me his name, and then it's quiet again. And uh, I keep in my head being reminded, well, God is in the details when we are in his will. So I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do. And I can't wait 30 minutes to do it. So about five minutes of quiet, just driving, about five miles. And finally, I, I just say, here's, here's what I say. I say, so, I'm a pastor. <laughs> so I'm a pastor. And I've been trying to figure out why God let my car break down. And the only reason I can think of is because God wants you to spend the next hour talking to a pastor. (laughs) And I promise that's exactly what I said to him. And he didn't say anything. It was kind of quiet for about 15 or 20 seconds. felt like a long time. And then he finally says, Well, my girlfriend and I, we have twins together. And... uh, We broke up about three months ago, and this weekend she got married. And I said, well, let's talk about that. And we talked about that, and talking about that led to other things. It led to conversations about his spiritual heritage, which wasn't much, but we said, Everybody has a little story somewhere. Well, he had his story of his experience as a young kid in a, in a Baptist church. And we talked about that. And we talked about uh, church in the Tri-Cities and what that would be like, you know, where there are healthy churches. And, and we just had that conversation, a spiritual conversation together. And then in about an hour, we pull up to the shop and, uh, and we get out and he hands me, you know, he takes my credit card and has me sign for it, $250. And then I say, so can I pray with you? He says, yeah. And he takes off his hat and we pray together, you know, and I just ask God to bless him and be at work in his life and show him and help him with some of these issues that we talked about. And then when I say amen, he puts his hat back on, this tall, lanky guy reaches down and hugs me. Okay, so I'm not a I'm I'm not a hugger, usually, <laughs> at least at least not with truckers. Uh, okay, but you know I mean this was a moment that we were having, and uh, I've had just a little bit of contact with him since around Christmas time. I wrote him a note and I sent him the Purpose Driven Life, and said, Hey, think about you and pray for you. And I've been praying for him. And I'm just one person in his life. I just play a cameo role. That's all I was. I was just a walk-on in his life. Uh, and I don't, you don't, just don't know how God will use those kind of interactions. Uh, but it's true for all of us. We all play a part in the lives of people whose paths we intersect. Sometimes we're walk-ons, and we just play a tiny little role. 
Other times, we're the first conversation someone has where they're treated like a normal person or where they're treated like a normal person by a Jesus follower, at least. Sometimes it's, we're part of the, a person's first conversation about God, maybe in a long, long time. And, and that's the role that we play. Sometimes we play a role with someone else where they just need a little bit of a nudge and they're ready to trust Jesus. But, but to play any of those roles, we've got to be engaged and then we've got to be willing to bring our identity with us as Jesus followers. Sometimes you just play a little walk-on role, but sometimes you're part of a much longer process in someone's life. Let me tell you another quick story about a lady named Rose... uh, Her name was Rosalina uh, Butterfield. Uh, I'm sorry, Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield. And she's written a book. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's a brand new book. Secret, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And she's an unlikely convert. She was an English professor. English professor, uh, liberal politics, lesbian lifestyle, and that's who she was. And she was living with her partner, teaching English in a, in, a, in a college. She was involved in AIDS activism and children's literacy and rescuing golden retrievers and belonged to a Unitarian church. And that was kind of her lifestyle. And her main exposure to Christianity was People who hated homosexuals. That was her main, those were the sound bites that she heard from Christianity. That was her story. Is the only parts that, of Christianity that ever stuck with her was that these people were, were the people who said, acted hateful towards homosexuals. One day she writes an article in her local newspaper, and in this article she basically attacks Christians, hypocritical and, and inconsistent and those kinds of things. And she gets mail. And she gets fan mail. And she gets hate mail, and she gets one letter she doesn't know what to do with. And it's a letter that is respectful, but disagrees. And, and, and points out something. Have you, asks her some questions about how she came to this place. Asks her some questions about her own life experience. And asks her just to think about a few things. And then, at the end, invites her to dinner. It's from a man and his wife. Invite her to dinner. And you've got to give this woman credit. Uh, she accepts this invitation, and she goes to dinner in this, in this home. And she tells this story. She tells it in a Christianity Today article, and then she tells it at further length in this book. And she tells about how she just gets treated at dinner like a, like a regular person by these two Jesus followers. And she'd never had any experience like that before. And they talked about interesting things. And at the end, they invited her over again for dinner. And they have this conversation with her for two years. And over two years, they talk about all kinds of things at the dinner table. They talk about uh, politics. And they talk about sex. And they talk about the Bible. And all these things that are taboo, but they have normal, meaningful conversations about them. And then they, and she starts going to church with them. And then she starts reading her Bible. And that gives them even more to talk about. And they just talk about it. Two years. And you know what happens. And over time, God draws this woman to himself. And through these Jesus followers, God shows her, Rosaria, that he is alive and well. And that he is in the process of taking people's lives and forgiving their past and bringing them into a new future. And she responds to Jesus as a forgiver of her sins and the leader of her life. And now she's married to a man she, her husband is now a pastor. She's telling her story in, in uh, different venues and has the opportunity to talk about what God has done in her life. The point is, that wouldn't happen if, if all Jesus' followers ever did was treat her 
like this from a distance. But someone wasn't afraid to both engage and be salty, bring their identity into that relationship. And I tell you that story just because it personifies what I'd like for us to be at Trinity. I'd like for us to be people who aren't afraid to engage, who make time for people who don't know God, who aren't afraid then to bring our identity in those relationships. And not just in one-off little boom, you know, uh, cold call encounters, but, but also in relationship with people over time. And that as we do that, that's what our valley needs, salt and light, needs exposure to salt and light. How else is this decay and darkness going to be impacted unless our valley comes into contact with salt and light? And that's what we've got to do. And I hope that this series will help point us toward that and remind us that we can't turn inward, but we've got to continually be aware of the people in our path that God wants us to be part of. So, uh, there are a couple steps I want to point you to as I wrap things up. One is a step that you can take this summer, and one is a step that you can take right now. So a tep- step that you can take this summer, uh, that's, what's, that's what all this is about here today. This is what we call Trinity's block party in a box. And it's not really in a box, it's in a few different boxes. But it's, uh, th- this is stuff that Trinity has purchased for the sole purpose of the people of Trinity having at least a starting point for throwing a block party. We've got games and picnic supplies and this awning and a cooler. and uh, you know, It's not for your family reunions and it's not for your camping trip. It's for you to be part of investing in the relationships in your neighborhood or with the people that, that you want that are, that are part of your life that, that you're uh, wanting to invest in. And uh, this is available for anyone who wants to check it out anytime that you need it for this purpose. I'm really uh, fortunate that I'm, I live in an area where, where we have two meaningful events a year that bring people in our neighborhood together. I live near Whitman College, a lot of diversity there. And uh, I have a neighbor who's a Trinity attender, Uh, And this family is very faithful. They throw a beautiful party for our neighborhood. And they invite people of all kinds of walks of life to come to this party. And I I just get to come and meet people in my neighborhood because some fellow followers are willing to do that. And it's a beautiful change. And then last year, we've been talking about a block party on our block for a while, and I like to be part of those conversations, but... I wasn't in a position this time last year to do anything about it. And uh, for the very first time, I mean, we're not involved in it at all. And our block throws a block party. And we got to just show up. And we actually had the street blocked off uh, by the city. You got to get special city permission. But you can do that. You can actually block the streets. And, and uh, what a great chance to meet all kinds of different people. And they are different. And it's just a beautiful chance to do that. We're going to be doing it again this year. And again, the Hendersons take a back seat. We're not even part of really much of the planning at all. We're going to help and bring support. But, but uh, other people have the ball and are, are making it go. And it's just a great opportunity for us to interact with people who don't know God. And for me as a pastor, it's hard for me to find those kinds of relationships. So, block party. Block party in a box. 
What would God have you do with this and with the people who live near you so that you can be salt and light in their lives? That's one thing you could do this summer. Be a catalyst for your neighborhood. Second thing that you can do, you can do today. You have in your worship folder a little card that's about this size that says Easter on one side and has some blanks on the other, and that's called an impact card. I'd like you to go ahead and take that out. Your impact card is one of the ways that... uh, you can do something about being salt and light even today. We have people who use impact cards all year round. They put the names of people in their path who don't know God, who need a relationship with Jesus, and they pray for them. And they use this all year long to pray. I'm asking everyone at Trinity to use this for the next two weeks and put the name of someone that you want to invite, you want to bring with you on Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday, it's going to be a beautiful morning. It's going to be really just uh, well done. You'll be proud to have invited your friends, and your friends will feel honored by you for you to invite them. But it's got to come along with prayer. And so I'm asking you to take this, put the names of people that you will pray for to bring this Easter. If you have someone else who's on your heart, and there's no way they're going to Easter service because they live in on the other side of the country, you know, and they're not going to be coming with you. We put their name on there. Go ahead and pray for them too, but pray for some people that you will bring with you on Easter Sunday, and that's something that we can do about it uh, right away. And so that's my encouragement to you. My encouragement to you is to think about some things you can do long-term, but for all of us to mobilize on the short-term, to be praying for the next two Sundays for some specific names of people we want to bring with us. Then you've got a beautiful invitation there. This is your Easter invitation. Everyone has one in in their worship folder. We have a bunch of them all over the building. You take as many as you need and feel free to pass them out, put them up on a bulletin board. Whoops. Take them and use them, all right? And uh, be in prayer for us as we get ready for this special service only two weeks from today. That's a lot to think about. I'd like to close with prayer. Father, my prayer is that we will be doers of the word and not hearers only. So help us to be salt and light. Not to talk about being salt and light. Not to feel like we should, but to actually... Put faith to our words. Put actions to our words. And I pray that you will mobilize us to see the world like you see it. And then to put these things we talk about into practice in the lives of people in our paths. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.